Welcome to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. In this podcast series, every two weeks, host Audrey Dove shares with you a new topic related to innovation and its impact for the legal world, with a special focus on intellectual property. Welcome to this special episode of Brand New in Boston, Massachusetts, recorded during INTS 2019 annual meeting. This unique event, a must for education and networking, is attended each spring by more than 10,000 members of the intellectual property community and beyond from more than 150 countries. So Brandon, you could not miss it. Counterfeiting is no less than one of the biggest issues of our times. It's self-evident to say that it's linked to crimes, that it costs billions to companies and societies every year in all areas. So relevant actions are more essential than ever, particularly to tackle illicit sales. Our episode today is about the most efficient ways with the development of innovative tools to fight these new pirates. Our focus will be China and its challenges about IP, including the impact of so-called trade war with the US. My guest is partner at one of the largest law firms in the world, Becker McKenzie, present in more than 40 countries. Lok Kuntan leads the intellectual property practice group in Hong Kong and China and co-leads the firm's luxury and fashion industry practice. He works with global brands, helping them to structure and implement anti-counterfeiting strategies. Locke is the author of the Pirates Trilogy and other publications about IP protection. So who else to talk about this hot topic? Audrey, so good to be here. Bonjour, ciao An. <laughs> it's a good, so good morning, Boston. Thank you so much. So first, we, we would be very interested in your perspective on the current threats to the fashion and luxury sectors in China. Are today's pirates the same as yesterday's? And have their nature changed in the recent years with the increasing pace of innovation and the development of commerce, which not only benefits legitimate right holders, but also infringement perpetrators. You know, the traditional model where you're buying counterfeit goods, physical stores, that's still, while it's still happening in major Beijing, Shanghai and Guangzhou, you know, increasingly the counterfeiters are transferring their operations online. And this change is very obvious and relevant in China because China is one of the biggest e-commerce markets in the world, accounting for over 40% of global e-commerce so uh, what I've seen is, you know, some interesting statistics, as you may know, um, sales of luxury goods reached up to 170 billion in 2017. That's an uh, increase of 20% from 2017. Millennials, and I suppose that's the age uh, group from 23 to 38, they're willing to spend on luxury brands and they are financially able to do so. And you might have heard of the Singles Day, Alibaba's, you know, very special online shopping extravaganza. This happens on 11-11, which is 11 November you know, every year. And the shoppers just spend so much, billions of dollars sorry, on that day itself. So in the past, uh, fashion luxury companies were reluctant to make use of solutions and functionalities offered online. But I think they have no choice these days. They are looking for an omni-channel sort of presence. 
So uh, what I've seen today is China's new luxury consumer is more willing to and sometimes prefers to access and buy premium goods online. All right. So uh, the counterfeiting activities that we have seen are the following: cyber squatting, you no know, keyword advertising, meta tagging. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's been a notable rise in the rise of counterfeit goods on e-commerce platforms and social media uh, platforms. So even though Alibaba, Tencent, other platforms, they have taken a lot of efforts, I think, to build an in-house capability to fight this, we feel that uh, you know there's still a lot of work to be done. But you know there's still some good hope on the horizon. There's new e-commerce law, and perhaps you can talk a bit about that later on. And um, the last thing I'll say is, you know, counterfeiters are getting really smart these days, and uh, we are trying to keep up with them. They've come up with all kinds of things, like you know, they're keeping up the 3D technology. They are uh, pricing their counterfeits differently. There's P2P file sharing, uh, allows design files to be copied very quickly without authorization online. You know, there's a lot of illegal uh, streaming, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So much happening. Mm-hmm. Locke, your practice focuses on preventive actions that one may take to limit piracy risks, uh, including by structuring IP rights in a purposeful way and by anti-counterfeiting planning techniques. What's your most common recommendation to clients to protect their intellectual property assets and to prevent and react to counterfeiting? Do you rely on or recommend innovative tools such as artificial intelligence or machine learning, including anti-counterfeiting programs developed by the companies you just mentioned, Baidu, Alibaba or Tencent, for that purpose? There, the way I look at it, to keep it simple, there are three basic steps for protecting IP rights. First of all, you have to identify and clear the IP rights by conducting, obviously, the appropriate clearance searches. Then, obviously, you need to register in all the relevant jurisdictions, and then you need to monitor the competing marks. So I would say that um, we need to act fast. We usually advise our clients to apply for all IP rights as soon as possible. China is a first-to-file trademark jurisdiction, meaning that the party who files for registration first gets the exclusive rights to use the trademark, regardless of whether you know, the applicant is using or intends to use the trademark. Uh, brands should also consider transliterations in the English language trademarks, and obviously, uh, budget permitting, they should file simultaneously new marks in all jurisdictions. They need to be creative. I think that's extremely important. They need to look to other laws and IP regulations. It's not just trademarks. There's copyright. There's customs. There's unfair competition, which is a very, very flexible mm-hmm. uh, legislation in China. Over in Baker McKenzie, uh, we have obviously looked at um, the, the various technology platforms. We continue to look. Uh, there's an innovation company, and they are looking at various AI and other options. I think at INTA, we'll be scouting around too for new ideas. But we have something called the GIPM. That's a global IP manager. It's a single web-based technology platform. It's accessible internally and externally by our agents, our clients around the world. So this platform provides us with a real-time global view of a client's entire portfolio. So how it works is each mark is organized by country and legal action. And each record can be further classified according to the business, you know, the unit and the brand. So this is linked to document management, emailing and billing systems and supports various languages. We think that our GIPM obviously needs to be upgraded in view of all the things that are happening around us. And we hope that we'll be able to keep up. Mm-hmm. It's virtually impossible to address current issues relating to trademarks 
and more generally intellectual property in China without discussing the current geopolitical context and more specifically the US-China so-called trade war. While IP issues are not the only ones on the table, they are at the core of the disagreement between the two countries and the US alleging notably a lack of adequate legal protection under IP law for foreign companies doing business in China. What's the actual impact of this on your clients and more generally on your practice, both from a legal and a business standpoint? And how do you expect this to play out in the coming weeks or months? I had the privilege of uh, having some interface with these issues uh, during the Clinton administration. During that time, there was obviously also a trade dispute. And at the end of the day, they came up with a memorandum of understanding on IP protection. And that was a kind of a good result. But deja vu today. I mean, there's a little bit of, I think, uh, differences with the new administration in, in the U.S., um, what China has done uh, so far, in fact, in the lead-up to INTA, I've been looking up and uh, China has been speaking out. So there's been meetings with, for example, Francis Gary, the Director General of WIPO. Uh, this happened uh, in August last year where Premier Li Keqing was saying that uh, China will improve its IP rights and they have, in fact, recently done so with the amendments to the trademark law and there's also the unfair competition law that has come to place as we speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just happened very, very recently. And of course, the China National IP Administration, they've had very good results over the last uh, few months. I guess, in a way, they're trying to show that they are efficient and they can give good decisions at court levels. There is a lot of rhetoric, I must say. Uh, but over in our practice, to be honest, I have seen very little um, differences in the sense that there's not been the sting, so to speak, of the dispute. And uh, I do not feel that there's been any particular decisions that have gone strangely wrong. There's been rumours of tit for tat, but over uh, in our practice, and I'm sure my colleagues in the industry will agree with me too, uh, it seems to be business as usual, but there's, it's been perhaps more efficient than before, if only to prove the point that China is at the forefront of IP protection. You know, China is really a self-help jurisdiction. So if you fold up your arms and be an armchair critic and say that, you know, they're not doing this, not doing that, really? So, you know, you, you really need to be creative and to explore all the various avenues of IP protection which are available. And it has the best tools in the world, really. And uh, we have, you know, obviously tried to leverage the different legislations around us to get the best results. I am an optimist by nature, so this is my uh, position on the issue. There's also the, always the same question of enforcement. Uh, there is definitely uh, room for better negotiation uh, between, obviously, two parties. But in the IP arena, um, we have constantly engaged the various uh, authorities, whether the administrative level or the judicial level, and. Our experience is that people are very helpful and I I suppose what I'm speaking to are obviously the major cities where IP protection and transparency of the actions are more visible. But if you're going to more protectionist cities, sometimes you will get some very um, unfortunate or disappointing results. Our advice for clients is to be very, very um, discreet in the way that you go forum shopping and obviously to pick good major jurisdictions to fight in. And to, you know, you have to come prepared. Evidence is key. If you don't have the right evidence, you know, there's nothing to talk about. The e-commerce- 
Governor's law took effect on January 1st this year in China. The bill addresses intellectual property law issues, uh, but it also deals with broader issues related to liability of all internet players, among others. Could you give us a glimpse of the major changes brought by the bill and more generally, what are the latest developments related to IP rights protection in China? The uh, e-commerce law, it took effect in uh, 1st January this year, so it's like a New Year present for everyone. <laughs> I'm very happy with that. I would just focus on five main features. I, I would say that the first one is uh, there's an increased scope. So the, the ECL, the e-commerce law, it applies to all e-commerce operators. This means all natural and legal persons that are engaged in the business of selling merchandise or providing services on the internet or other information networks. You know, it's a very wide definition, so it covers e-commerce platform operators, the vendors of the goods and services on the e-commerce platforms, and those that operate the self-built websites or through other network services. So importantly, this also covers non-traditional shopping channels such as social media and messaging services. Okay, that's the first point. Second thing is joint liability and constructive knowledge. The ECL provides that where e-commerce platform operators know or should have known that goods or services provided on their platforms do not comply with requirements you know, for personal property security. If they violate the laws or interests of consumers you know, mm -hmm. they, and they do not take necessary measures, then they will be jointly and severally liable. So that's very clear. And so a consumer who suffers damage will sue both the vendor and the e-commerce platform. I suppose this uh, plays a greater, greater burden on e-commerce platform operators. The second point. The third one is notice and takedown. So it provides a legal framework for notice and takedown procedures, which already, in fact, enshrined in existing regulations. It just makes it clearer. Nonetheless, I think this notice and takedown procedure is a very good step. The fact that they put it down makes it very clear for everyone. The, f the fourth thing I would say is a business license registration. So the ECL requires that all e-commerce operators need to ensure that their business license and other license information you know, are properly displayed online. So this makes it easier for us to identify infringers because one of the main problems we have is trying to figure out who's, who's the guy to go after. Mm -hmm. And the fifth point I would raise is uh, retention of transactional information. The ECL requires all e-commerce platforms to keep records of product and service information as well as transaction records for not less than three years. So as I mentioned earlier, evidence is key in, in your counterfeiting fight. So it helps us to build uh, evidence gathering for an infringement case. But besides, uh, Audrey, besides the uh, e-commerce law, uh, as I also uh, just alluded to, the um, Chinese administration has also passed amendments to the trademark law and the anti-unfair competition law. This was very recent, so you know, in April. So I'm not sure whether it's an I INTA present too <laughs> well, in, in time for this podcast. But anyway, it's uh, obviously something we're excited about. There are certain nuggets in it. I'll just mention that bad faith one of the things that they are targeting. So bad faith applications that are filed without intention to use will be rejected by TMO now. The lack of purpose or use has been added as an absolute ground for opposition and invalidation. So that's, you know, very, very good news. And there's heavier penalties for infringement. Uh, it's in fact quintuple damages for bad faith trademark infringements. And statutory damages has been increased to 5 million. Previously it was 3 and then, uh, interestingly, and this is quite, I suppose, uh, a little controversial for some people, trademark agents are also targeted under the revised trademark law. So it pro prohibits trademark agents from taking on clients who intend to file bad faith trademark applications. And could you share an example? 
I, w- I would say that uh, most recently we have done more look-alike cases mm-hmm. and look-alike cases are always very difficult because there's some discretion whether it's based on a trademark law or the patent law or the copyright law for the authorities to take a different view. But happily, uh, we've been blessed with very good results in terms of look-alike cases uh, that, have, uh, that we've been handling over the past few months. I, I suppose a cynic might say that, oh, they're doing all this because they want to show the world that they are more progressive. But I don't think so. I mean, it's just a natural progression of the way that the laws have been um, worked out. The tools are there, the nuggets are there in the law. And if you leverage them, you know, in a good jurisdiction, with good evidence, I think you can get the results. And, you, works. Yeah. Yeah. and these are cases that I've seen in the consumer goods and retail industry. Um, there are a lot of cases, um, you know, the usual cases of online cases where luxury goods are being sold. We continue to find it difficult to get the evidence. I must say. But to the extent that you can, um, there have been publicized results for Louis Vuitton, for Fendi, where they've got very good uh, seizures of luxury goods. And you know, a lot of these operation, uh, operations across uh, China have been very successful. This has seen the cooperation of not just the traditional sort of AIC, Administration for Industry and Commerce, but also the Chinese police. So I think perhaps in those cases, there was more than just IP law. There were other you know, violations of the law, which made it possible to trigger the other articles of uh, the law. Are Chinese courts prone to sanction uh, trademark infringement and related offenses, such as unfair competition against foreign brands doing business in China? Uh, in other words, is China a litigation forum for them to consider? Or... Are there other more effective ways for trademark owners to defend their rights and seek damages? When I started my practice, and this was a really long time ago, Audrey, (laughs) this is 1989, uh, I had the privilege of seeing how practice has developed. In those days, a lot of our clients were so afraid to test the cases in court. And perhaps in those days, I would have said, you know, don't even try, because the courts in those days were not um, very well equipped in terms of the judges, their experiences. And therefore, for quick justice, most of the time, we would just go for administrative cases, just a very short paper trail, good evidence, and then you get the results. It's quick justice. But the problem is that those are not very good deterrents. So the fines are also very low. So many clients are frustrated because it's like, you know, going to the amusement park where you hit the little uh, mole in the, you know, quackamole, what do you call it, those hit the mole games, and another one appears. But um, they are now, I would say, many clients are more courageous and more willing to go to courts because the courts have been more sophisticated. We are seeing, in fact, things like internet courts Mm -hmm. that never existed before. And also the courts have more willing to give damages and injunctive relief to their clients. And therefore, we are able to assure the clients that they'll be be able to get good justice in the courts also, whereas in the past, they may be afraid to do so. The thing that I guess at the end of the day, you need to remember is China is not going to be going out of its way to help any particular brand owner. It's open for everyone. It's a self-help remedy. So you need to be proactive. You need to be creative. You need to consider all the tools available to you, I would say that. And one analogy I can share with you is, um, I thought of it this way. So you need to find the right building, okay? So the, basically the right administration. You need to go to the right floor. So, you know, within the administration, there will be different departments. You need to find the right door. And you need to find you know, the right subunit, I suppose, mm. within the department. And you need to find the right person. So, the, you know, whether it's uh, a particular official on, on a particular day. So if you are able to go through all those processes, that's for administrative action, you can get good results. Mm-hmm. And as far as the courts are concerned, 
I would say that you should focus on the more experienced courts in the major jurisdictions when you go forum uh, shopping. I can mention to you uh, this case by it was it was reported uh, Dunhill. Uh, in October 2018, Dunhill was awarded 10 million damages for trademark infringement against a local company called Tan Huo Li. And the founder of this, uh, this company was also personally liable for infringement. So this 10 million RMB is larger than the average amount that you would ever wow. find in trademark mm-hmm. infringement cases. And what we understood from reading about these cases is that in determining the amount, the court recognized the obvious bad faith of the defendant and the extensiveness of the infringement. So, um, for example, uh, Tan Huali had originally, originally registered the Tan Huali trademark in plain form, but had for several years you know, used the mark in a manner which is strikingly similar to Alfred Dunhill's uh, elongated lettering black and white colour palette. And they also had a shadow company in Hong Kong to manage their corporate business activities. So these are very obvious bad faith things. So um, in the past, when you furnish such evidence, you know, there's always some um, excuse perhaps that uh, the infringer would give for their activities and the courts seem sympathetic to those views but we're very happy that in this case they were able to really look deeper and to understand that in fact it was a very uh, well-organized counterfeiting activity you know, like, like I said you know, they even established uh, presence in Hong Kong so they were able to give us a good result and I know that the, the number isn't everything, but 10 million is uh, a lot mm-hmm. for Chinese cases. Mm-hmm. So that's one example. And uh, another one, my, I, I mentioned Fila. Uh, oh, maybe I didn't mention Fila. But Fila was also another brand that was awarded 7.9 million, this RMB again, for punitive damages for trademark infringement. So this is about three times uh, the defendant's illegal turnover in that case. So punitive damages is again something uh, that's quite uh, rare in Chinese cases. Mm-hmm. And you feel that it will be more and more common? I'm hopeful. I mean, uh-huh. there's no precedent basis mm-hmm. uh, in the way that the courts give out the decisions. Each case is based on its own fact. But uh, the influence of these good results is that, you know, in a, I suppose in a particular jurisdiction which had a good result, the, the judiciary of the next case mm-hmm. might be uh, slightly more... Um, Positive in giving good results. Encouraged. Uh, encouraged, you know, <laughs> along the same yeah. line. I have a last question for you, Locke. To conclude, a question I ask to all guests of Brennan You. Can you tell us your secret? Uh, how do you keep up with tech innovation? And if you were to give our listeners one advice, such as one small step to include in their daily professional routine to make them more knowledgeable in IP and uh, tech developments in China... What would it be? I uh, continue to be on a learning curve, <laughs> even <laughs> though I've been practicing for some time. And especially, you know, with all the technology, all the things which the millennials are more familiar with, I feel like I'm a dinosaur sometimes, but I'm a very curious dinosaur. I think that keeps me on the move. So I'm always looking out if I'm walking in, you know, in a shopping mall for new brands. If I'm in a technology fair, I'll look to, you know, to understand what the new technologies are. I spend time with my colleagues who know about these things better to understand how it all works. So I think that makes me, uh, I guess, more equipped over time to deal with the various technologies uh, that are happening on the counterfeiting scene. The way I look at it, um, Steve Jobs has encouraged us you know, to be foolish, to be curious, to always ask questions. So I am a constant learner. So that would be my tip for you. Remain foolish, remain curious. <laughs> Thank you so much, Locke. Thank you so much, Audrey.
My guest today was Lokuntan, partner at Baker and McKenzie, at the 2019 annual meeting of INTA. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for future episodes of Brand and New, a podcast from the International Trademark Association. If you liked this episode and think someone else would too, please share it. And to learn more about INTA, please visit INTA.org.